Hello there, and welcome to episode number 380 of Smart Podcast Trashy Books. I'm Sarah Wendell from Smart Bitches Trashy Books, and today my guest is editor and digital grandmaster Angela James. Angie and I have known each other for a long, honking time, I think over 14 years. So in between snort laughing and talking about friendship, we talk about her new editorial adventure and business following the elimination of her position at Karina Press over the summer. If you're curious about editing and how that process works, get ready to learn all of the things. Today's podcast is sponsored by Unravel You by Diana A. Hicks. If you like steamy contemporaries with a touch of suspense, you will love this billionaire romance. College graduate Valentina never expected to fall for the hot-as-hell and intimidating Derek Cole when she accepted his offer to rent his property. From cottage to mansion, Valentina is certain she doesn't deserve the fairy tale that's unfolding. But just when Derek and Valentina think they have a handle on their happily ever after, their past and their future collide. A Book Lovers Emporium book blog called it a fantastic ride, and I Love Books blog loved every minute of it. Unravel You by Diana A. Hicks is available now on Amazon and free with a Kindle Unlimited subscription. Find out more at dianahicksbooks.com. Today's podcast and the transcript are brought to you by The Modern Breakup by Daniel Chidiak. Part confessional diary, part tell-all from multiple points of view, The Modern Breakup has become a social media sensation that is intensely relatable for anyone who navigates the dating world and still isn't sure what to make of it. So many women are connecting with The Modern Breakup, finding questions they've asked about their relationships inside Amelia's perspective as well, helping them feel less alone. Reviewers on Amazon call it a must-read, saying, quote, it's like this book is reading my mind, end quote. You can find The Modern Breakup by Daniel Chidiak everywhere books are sold, and stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a sample of the book read by me, yours truly. It is still holiday travel season, isn't it? And if you are looking at more travel time or just longer commutes because the trains are crowded, or you just don't want to interact with people, I have a word for you, and that word is audiobooks. Audible has the world's largest selection of audiobooks and audio entertainment, including Audible Originals. You can start listening today with a 30-day Audible trial. Choose one audiobook and two Audible Originals absolutely free. Visit audible.com slash trashybooks or text trashybooks to 500-500. I will never stop thinking that's so cool. If you sign up, you can get the latest Audible original from Alyssa Cole, which you learned about in last week's episode. The AI Who Loved Me is available now, performed by Regina Hall and Mindy Kaling, among many others, and it's part of an Audible subscription. So you can get a 30-day Audible trial with one audiobook and two Audible originals for free. Visit audible.com slash trashybooks or text trashybooks to 500-500. That's A-U-D-I-B-L-E dot com slash trashybooks or text trashybooks to 500-500. I have a compliment in this week's episode. I love this. To Ginny B., If your personality were a pie recipe, it would be a perfect mix of every season and every fruit and would make everyone at the table so very happy and would come with an absolutely foolproof, never fail pie crust recipe because you're that fabulous. 
If you would like a compliment of your very own, or you'd like more information on how to join our Patreon community, have a look at patreon.com slash smartbitches. And as always, hello and thank you to our Patreon supporters. At the end of the episode, I have a terrible joke. I have a sample of an audiobook, but right now I have an interview with Angela James. Let's do this thing on with the podcast. I'm Angela James. Um, who am I? Well, we've come up with a couple of different names for me. I'm the Grandmaster. I love uh, this so much. <laughs> just Grandmaster. We're not going to put any um, qualifications around that. Like no. Grandmaster of what? I, it, it could be anything. Doesn't uh, matter. The other day, Vivarand called me Digital Rebel. So I thought Digital Rebel works. But really, who I am is I'm an, an editor. I edit fiction, romance, women's fiction, mystery. I am a consultant. Uh, somebody called me the alternative to your agent when you don't have an agent and you need publishing advice. And because I have a background in therapy, it means I'm really good at listening. And I also do publishing strategy, which looks like consulting with companies on um, digital publishing, as well as other things within the digital industry. So I'm a, I'm, I do a little bit of everything these days, although I think my, my career has always been that. I think Grandmaster kind of sums it up too. <laughs> Grandmaster. Grandmaster is um, very tongue in cheek, but it, it does make me laugh. I don't know. It, it, it is encompassing, but also vague. So there's <laughs> lots that fit in there. Grandmaster of all the things, all which the things, things up to you to decide. <laughs> all the things. And it couldn't, I mean, Grandmaster, for me, Grandmaster always makes me think of barbecue. So I always get really hungry. Um, sorry if it makes anybody hungry. <laughs> <laughs> I always think of um, very, very vintage hip hop with like Grandmaster Flash. Oh, yeah. Like that's a good one. Instead of tape, ta uh, instead of turntables, you have like laptops and tablets and a bunch of editing pens. Yeah, which is great because I actually have no rhythm. So <laughs> <laughs> I can I'm I'm good at I'm good at story beats, but not so much when it comes to the dancing or the the music. So good. <laughs> the other kind of grandmaster. Okay, great. So stop at your new business, yo. Uh, uh, what, I know you have just launched a website because I've seen it. And uh, what services are you offering? It's very nice to, uh, of you to ask, especially since you've seen it more than a few times. Um, it's true. <laughs> so I should probably say my website is AngelaJames.co, not, not the .com. And this really smart person actually suggested that I buy AngelaJames.co since .com wasn't available. Oh, and really? What a smart person. I know. Amazingly smart. Uh, so can you tell smart. me more about that person? <laughs> In case anybody hasn't guessed, it was Sarah. Yeah, it's totally me. <laughs> but isn't AngelaJames.com like a long distance runner? Yeah, she's owned that website, that .com forever. I mean, as long as I have been on the internet, which is well over 15 years, she has yeah. owned that .com. And so occasionally I'll mistype it and send people to her website, which I'm sure is very confusing. You could like spin on that, be like, go the distance with the other angels. <laughs> yes. I, I'm, I'm really impressed. I mean, anybody who's ever seen me knows I'm not a long distance runner because I'm short <laughs> and curvy. Um, so I'm, I'm definitely not a long distance runner and I'm full of admiration for her as well as the more famous Angela James, who is um, a hockey player. 
But yes, it's AngelaJames.co. And I'm offering freelance editing, developmental online editing services, some critique and consultation services, and just basically um, book services, a lot of book services, because books are what I love. So I know this is a question you get a lot, but can you explain very quickly the difference between a line edit and other kinds of editing? Because there's multiple types of editing that you offer and um, not, I don't think not everyone, I don't think everyone really knows what the differences are. Can you give like a quick summary of the differences? I can because I have done this before. (laughs) I thought you might have, maybe Uh, on a panel. 35 times in your life. A panel, webinars, I've I've done it a number of times. I only offer two basic types of editing myself. I offer content or developmental editing, um, it's called the same thing, and line editing. I do not offer copy editing or proofreading, even though I started in the industry as a copy editor. Uh, my talent lies in developmental and line editing. And since I firmly believe that authors should hire editors who specialize, I don't specialize in copy editing and proofreading. I specialize in content and line editing. So content is the big picture overall editing that's done on a book. It would be story, character development, uh, plot, conflict, the climax, all of those things, the elements that go into putting the story together. That's the content and developmental editing. The line editing is more of the, as it sounds, line by line editing, but looking at the craft, how you're putting sentences together, word usage, repetition, uh, uh, voice, uh, characterization of the voice, and um, all of those things that, that, that go to putting together the, the lines. Copy editing and proofreading are the more granular edits. And, and I don't do those because while I can, again, I'm not, I don't specialize in them and they take a, a more detail oriented overview. So if someone is hiring a, a line editor, they're going to get feedback from someone who's going to point out, for example, their verbal tics that they, frequent words or, or phrases that they use in their writing. Um, or make sure that characters sound consistent line by line in the manuscript, whereas the content is the full story, the sort of 34,000-foot view of how it works as a cohesive whole. Do I have that about right? Yeah, that's that's actually very good. It, that's correct. Uh, mo- it's hard to, I would say if it's hard to separate uh, developmental and line edits at a certain stage. They, they tend to go hand in hand, again, because of development of, of author voice and character voice. Um, but they are two separate things. Mm-hmm. And voice is important, right? Like maintaining the author's voice and what or who the writing sounds like is part of developing a writer. Do I have that right too? Talking about author voice is one of the things that um, that I talk about a lot when I talk about the editor-author relationship and when you're hiring an editor. And, and I have talked about this long before I was um, an editor for hire myself, where I think that uh, preserving author voice is the sign of a, of a great editor. I have seen a lot of samples. I have, because I have mentored and managed so many freelance editors myself throughout my career at the two presses that I ran, I have seen a lot of aspiring editors who want to test into the position. And one of the things, the most common things that you see 
in editors who aren't sure of what they're doing is a real interference in an author's voice and a character's voice. And so when somebody, when an author is looking for an editor to work with, it's important to find somebody who one is very passionate about your voice and loves your voice. And two, isn't going to try and rewrite your voice in order to meet some sort of fictional idea of what grammar should look like, what the right grammar is, um, or writing rules. Um, adherence to writing rules can be a real voice killer. So voice is actually very important in, in the editing process. That's really interesting because it's, it, it's one of the things that I, as a reader, notice how quickly I am drawn into a book rests a lot on the unique voice of the narrator or if it's first person, the character who's telling me the story. All too often, sometimes I will find books that sound so flat mm -hmm. and neutral almost as if they are trying to please everyone and so they are, they are completely indistinguishable, like almost like an AI wrote it. <laughs> that's, I, I think that's the sign of somebody who really wants to tell a story but hasn't gotten comfortable with the idea that it's okay to sink into their own unique voice. And as they're trying to tell the story, as they're trying to um, edit it to get it ready for the public or to get it ready for an editor or an agent, develop this editing checklist, which I think editing checklists are great, obviously, because I run a self-editing workshop. But I always tell people, don't don't try and adopt everything. Don't, don't try and edit everything out. Don't try and get rid of all the adverbs or all of the passive voice or all of the adjectives because what you're doing is you're actually editing out your voice because all of those elements go together to, to how you tell a story. So when something feels flat or lifeless, it's because they haven't allowed their character and their own voice to, to take the story away a little bit. Yeah, almost as if there's a... Adhering to that checklist creates a very stiff formality to the writing. It, the checklist supersedes the voice. That's that's exactly right. It's also why I think that sometimes when you see copy editors or even people who are line editing, and I talk about interviewing with voice, I'm talking about something as simple as um, changing how they are conjugating the verb or changing which um, which word they use, which can feel like very simple things. But in fact, just how you put the sentence together uh, and your rhythm, that's your voice. And if somebody comes in and really heavily uh, really is really heavily editing that and saying this this is actually correct this is this is proper English well first of all you're taking out the the author's voice and and second you're adhering to quite frankly a really white <laughs> form of proper English and not the accounting uh, yeah and not accounting for the nuances of language and um and culture and ethnicities and um so th there's a real danger in getting too wrapped mm -hmm. up in in proper grammar yes i'm actually listening to a um here, here's my nerdy deep dive of the month i'm listening to an 18 hour course on the history of language because mm -hmm. it's really fascinating to me how language changes and one of the things that the professor talks about is how different we are when we're talking 
if you write down exactly what someone says in a literal transcript when they're in a conversation, no one is grammatically correct. And certainly no one speaks consistently in complete sentences. Like that's not a thing that humans do easily (laughs) or normally. And bridging that into writing when you do kind of expect a complete sentence can be a challenge. But when it's all been stripped of the nuance of humanity, it sounds or reads very strange. And the thing I love about romance, especially, is the amount of humanity and empathy that's in the text. And that comes from sounding like real imperfect people. Yes. And uh, one of the things that you said is when we speak, we if you wrote down the transcript, it's going to be all broken. And and you'll notice that on the transcript of this podcast, Sarah and I are like starts and stutters, especially me. And, and you're going to hear a lot of, of broken sentences. So it, in editing, one of the, one of the things that people kind of adopted was this idea that it was okay to have improper grammar. And I'm going to use air quotes when I talk about improper grammar, because I don't, I don't think that we should subscribe to that now. But the idea was that it was okay to do it in dialogue. But then when you had the narrative, the the text part that wasn't in quotation marks, or that wasn't people speaking, then that part had to be has to be, you know, grammatically correct, or um, follow certain rules. And, and I, I don't agree with that, because I think all of that is is character voice, especially if people want to talk about deep point of view, if you're editing out somebody's voice in, in narrative, then you're actually editing out that deep point of view, and you're moving further away to a shallow point of view, moving to what you said, Sarah, where it sounds like you're reading an, an artificial intelligence or a robot something really flat. So mm-hmm. as we edit, we have to be careful not to 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 separate out dialogue and narrative and think that they're two separate entities that one has to has to follow certain rules and the other one gets a pass because that's not how voice works. No, definitely not. So people who've worked with you before because you've been editing for a long ass time. Mm-hmm. Hiring you independently outside of a larger company, what would be different about that editorial experience for someone thinking of, of hiring you? And what would what would be the same? Is there more that you can do operating independently? Or is the experience and the skill set pretty consistent? I think in some ways, the experience is probably most different for me versus somebody who's who's going to be hiring me. Now, obviously, <laughs> got a lot less meetings. I do have a lot Way less Way fewer meetings. There are no committees. We've got zero task forces now. <laughs> I, maybe I should form a task force just so I don't start to miss them suddenly. No, just, just don't trust me. Um uh, I would say that for people who have worked with me before, the thing that that's going to be different for them is I won't have to say no <laughs> as often, uh, whether it's saying no to working with something because I could only work within, I, I could only work on projects that obviously the imprint um, was willing to take on. So now marketing isn't here to tell me I can't acquire a book and edit it. Uh, so that's really different. Um, so I can edit the things that I want to edit. So in that regards, the authors that I've worked with, if they have a project that they would want to work on, then I, then I can just say, yes, absolutely. I'm going to work on this project. Other than that, um, my process is still the same. I'm still editing the same. I would say 
it's different that I have, I have more time to dedicate to edits now, because like you said, there's no meetings, there's no task forces. The only business I'm running is my own. I'm not answerable to anybody except for my husband, my daughter, two cats and two dogs. I was going to say, don't forget the cats because you know they have opinions. Well, I have office cat. Max is my office cat and he stays in the office with me all day. So he definitely has opinions. Oh yeah. (laughs) Wilbur is looking at me like, why is there this tub where I am supposed to sit? This is not okay. Yep. So it's, I have more time for edits, which means I can actually, um, put even more focus on them. Not that I wasn't focusing on edits before because that was serious to me, but I have more time to think about edits. Um, The other thing that's going to look different for the authors that I've worked with is that I don't have as much control over the end product. The author has control over the final end product because they're publishing it themselves. It's not going Mm -hmm. through a publisher. So I'm not controlling a style guide. The author controls the style guide. The author controls um, what happens after we're done. Are there copy edits? Are there proofread edits? Those, like, I don't have control over those things. So that that will be a different, that will look different for, for authors as well. And you're not acquiring for publication. You're acquiring for a step of publication. And you offer consulting services to help people navigate all those other steps, but you're doing a much smaller piece and like you said, are not in charge of the end result, nor are you publishing anything. That's right. Um, and that can be nerve wracking as well. It's both <laughs> it's both freeing and nerve wracking because when you're when you're editing something for a publication in a publishing company, you know what the end product is going to look like. You get comfortable saying, okay, this is on me. But when you're freelance editing something, and the book goes out without you having seen it a final time, you, you don't know what's going in there. <laughs> and that's, that, that, you know, like, I don't know, Some something could be added after I've seen it. And that is a little nerve wracking. Do you think there are any parts of that process that you'll miss? Like, will you miss developing cover art or doing some of the after editing parts of the process? <laughs> cover art was such a pain point. Um <laughs> Oh, come on. There's so many great stock images, except yeah, there are not. <laughs> I, I, I have to say, I think the, I want to say the cover art team that I worked with was incredibly talented. Um, the, the art team oh, at Harlequin. Great covers. Really great <laughs> really covers. Really great covers. Books. But um, as, as Karina got more and more invested in publishing inclusively and very diverse characters. And when I talk about diversity, I don't just mean people of color, but I mean all different types of diversity. It Cover art was really a challenge because the stock photo is just not available. Um, and especially if you're talking about romance stock, you have to find two people that you can maybe Photoshop together in a realistic mm-hmm. way. Yeah, cover is a real pain point. Um, as much as I'm proud of all of those covers at Karina, I, I'm not going to miss that process. <laughs> <laughs> so you and I have known each other for a very, very long time, yes. which is like I was counting and I was like, damn, I've run out of fingers. <laughs> Holy shit. And you've been in this industry for a long ass time. Yes, almost, almost um, two decades. Yep. Now, we met in 2007, right? Was it 2007? I think that was my first art no, of you. Was that, that your right? second? Is that right? Because my daughter was born in 2004. Right. And, and I was pregnant with, with my with younger son. Yeah. So we met in person. Was born in 20- we knew each other online yeah. before that. Yes, before that. But we met in person at RWA. 
So that was over 10 years ago. So we've known each other for at least 14 years. Yes. Was it? Was it? Just staggering. That's like both a long time and really not that long all at the same time. (laughs) It really is because it doesn't seem that long. If you could go back and talk to yourself 10, 15 (laughs) years ago, you know, 2009 or thereabouts, what would you tell yourself? (laughs) So Holy shit, strap in, get ready. So (laughs) Shit's about to get wild like nine times. (laughs) 2009 was the year that I left Sam Hain and went to work for Harlequin. And Sarah, as you probably well remember, in that time, I had actually actually quit my job at Sam Hain as executive editor there to go work for a new startup company called Quartet Press. And um, I was very heavily courted by the venture capitalist who was investing in Quartet Press. And I finally agreed to leave Sam Hain and help them start this company. And then a month after I left, I got fired by email attachment. <laughs> <laughs> because yeah, that 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 was a that thing was a that thing, happened. and because the venture capitalist had had changed his mind, um, and so I not even like I didn't even get a phone call, and it wasn't even an email; it was an email attachment, which um, that's that's very two thousand and nine. <laughs> it is very two thousand. So I was really at a career crossroads during that time, and I actually uh, I actually had seriously considered going back to occupational therapy. I have a, a friend who who run, uh, runs a, a service here on the Eastern Shore of Maryland for teenagers in the justice system. And I had the potential to go back and, and work with him doing that. And uh, maybe, maybe if I could talk to my 2009 self, I would tell myself to go do that. <laughs> <laughs> Y'all, it is about to get worse. Just get ready. <laughs> um, I, you know, I joke about that, and and I don't know. Maybe, maybe I I would have told myself that, but I'm I'm pretty sure that my 2009 self would not have listened because when Harlequin <laughs> called and offered me first a consulting position and then a job, it was. You know, people talk about dream jobs. That was my dream job, working for Harlequin. Oh, I remember. Yeah, I mean, everybody—not yeah. everybody, but a lot of people who are in romance—have stories about Harlequin growing up, and mom and grandmas and aunts and and uncles and dads. Some of them mm-hmm. reading Harlequin, and, and I have one of those stories. And my mom passed away when I was seventeen, so for me, there is a real nostalgia attached to Harlequin. And so I don't, I don't think I would have done anything different. Um, but I, I think, I think if I would have given myself more practical advice, like spend more time on yourself, I, I think, I think I would have, would have told myself, spend more time on yourself. How much does editing and occupational therapy as a skill set pair? How much does that overlap? <laughs> In some ways, obviously not at all, but there are some things that I learned through my career in occupational therapy. And to be clear, I worked in mental health as an occupational therapist for seven years. So I was working first in home health and group homes with adults with mental illness and addiction. And then at the end of my career as an occupational therapist, I actually worked in a state hospital on the psychiatric wards. And I loved that job. And and I took a lot of skills away from that job. One of them was just patience. Like I have endless amounts of patience, which I, I never knew that about myself, but I do. And the other is uh, the ability to 
create goals and strategy. I'm super great at making goals and strategy, not just making those goals, but executing them. I think a lot of people can write goals, but learning how to execute goals is a, is a talent that I have. I can execute on goals and strategy. And, and so when you're helping an author put together a career path as an editor and planning out what's going to happen, I can help figure out how to execute that. And then, um, the ability to give feedback and criticism. Uh, I, I did that every day as an occupational therapist and do it in a way that makes sense to people and, and they find digestible. So, I mean, there, there's probably more skills. Oh, the other one that I got, which I love to speak. I love, um, I love teaching workshops and um, teaching people. And that's definitely a leftover from my occupational therapy days of running groups. Oh, for sure. And also taking an individual, whether they are working through an internal problem or working through an, an, a manuscript, is being able to see where it is that they're going mm-hmm. and then giving them the information that they need and the steps to get from point A to point B to point C to the final destination that you both have in mind. Yeah, that I mean, that's a really great way of putting it. And now in my my new business, uh, my consultation services, people people want to just do an hour and talk to somebody, have somebody talk them through, you know, where they're at, where they're going. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I did a call with somebody last week who was really feeling insecure about her career and her next steps, and we were able to talk that out, and I could pinpoint where her pain points were, mm-hmm. and. Also, I could hear what her her goals were, and I was able to to voice those back to her. And we came up with a, a plan, and not a whole plan, but just some easily executable steps where she can start because she was very overwhelmed and oh, yeah. um, didn't you know didn't know how to. She was kind of spinning her wheels, and I was able to say, "Let's do these small steps, and that's going to get you going towards where you want to go." And that's all, that's all part of occupational therapy, man, <laughs> helping Ooh. get somebody to the, to the end result. And getting them unstuck. Getting them unstuck. Yep. That's, that's definitely, definitely a skill service. And it also comes with the listening part because you have to hear not only what someone is saying, but what they're not saying and how they're saying all of those things. <laughs> like being able to identify a pain point that hasn't been verbalized is, is that's some next level listening skill. Well, you and I always joke about this, but uh, I have what you have referred to as bartender pheromone. And you- oh yes, the two of us <laughs> together is not good. And you do too, but you've, you've seen mine in action and, and maybe somebody listening to this podcast has seen mine in action. And it doesn't take anything. All I have to do is be standing next to somebody and they will just tell me incredibly personal details. And I'm talking about complete strangers, incredibly yeah. personal details. And I always, um, I always wondered, why this was. And somebody said to me once, it's because I smile too much, (laughs) which I think is probably part Ah. of, um, of, you know, working as a occupational therapist. But the other thing is, is because I, I'm a good listener. Like I, I Mm -hmm. will listen and I will listen for 15 minutes and, and not try and interrupt. And so Mm -hmm. I think people somehow sense that bartender pheromone that I will listen without judgment actually. Oh yeah. So you helped build Sam Hain. And then Karina, and you started working with some authors at the very start of their careers. Yes. Can you talk about some of the books that you've edited and some of the acquisitions that you made where like you got this manuscript and were like, oh, oh, yes. Oh, yes. All of these do. Yes. Come, come work over here. This will be great. 
Uh, it, you know, when I was putting together my website, one of the things on the website is the portfolio page. Mm-hmm. And I started putting books on the portfolio page that I have edited over the course of my almost two decades. And I was blown away by how many reader favorites that I have edited are um, now when I ask for recommendations on Twitter or Facebook, how many of the books that I've edited or the authors I've edited get recommended to me (laughs) is delightful. Um, And I I said this to somebody else, at at a certain point in publishing, you as the editor often get removed from the book. So even if Mm -hmm. you were acknowledged in it at the beginning or your name appeared in it at the beginning, at a certain point in the publishing process, you get removed from that. Uh, for instance, when Samhain closed and people took back all of their rights and were republishing, all of the acknowledgments got taken out and the credits. So those books are out there without any association with me. So it's it's weird to, to realize that I, I did that and many people aren't ever going to know. Um, I think at the beginning of my career, the best example is Shelley Lawrenston. Oh, for sure. <laughs> she is um, so popular with readers. And at Samhain, we published, um, I think, three of her Magnus Pack books. Um, Here, Kitty Kitty was one of them. We published those before they were before they were at Kensington. And actually, some of those were published at um, Triskillian Publishing, if anybody remembers. Whoa, there's a throwback. <laughs> I, yeah, I, some of them were published there before they came to us. So then um, at that time, Shelley wanted to write dragon romance, fantasy dragon romance. As, as you do. As you do. And so uh, Dragon actually it was the first book, and I edited that and the second book in that series as well. Speaking of, of voice and not editing it out, she has a very specific and distinctive voice. I find that when I recommend her books, I have to say, okay, it's kind of like cilantro. Some people absolutely adore it and some people think <laughs> it tastes like soap and it might not be for you and that's okay. It's a very specific style. One of the things that I have always loved about Shelley's voice is she has an unapologetically strong heroine voice. She is not, her characters are not apologizing for who they are. Yes. And um, that was actually when you consider that Shelley started her publishing career really two decades ago, during a, during a time when romance was even more hero centric, mm-hmm. she was a pioneer of that that heroine. Everybody wants to talk about the kick ass strong heroine. Shelley was a pioneer oh, yeah. of of that um, character archetype and the the plot involving both of them or sometimes just her and the hero is often in a supporting role in a lot of scenes. Yeah, Mm -hmm. absolutely. Which is what I like about them. And the emphasis on females working together, that all the heroines form packs or clans or groups that the heroine bonds were as important. Yes. Yes, I, she just um, her world building is amazing. Her oh, her, so her, her storytelling, and yeah, when you talk about voice, but Shelley Shelley has a recognizable voice and a way of telling a story, and um, I'm so glad that readers have embraced that. And unsurprisingly to you, Sarah, the the editor who brought her into traditional New York publishing was Kate Duffy. Not and, surprised. Uh, the Kate, the late Kate Duffy, the late great Kate yes. Duffy, 
She was a real, she was a real straight talker, which is why she would appreciate, she appreciated Shelley's work and, mm-hmm. and recognized Shelley's talent and, and brought her into, um, the New York scene and into Kensington where she has found, a, I hope, a supportive home. They, they seem to be very supportive of her career. I have to think what else that I, uh, you know, one of the fan favorites that's still discussed is Butterfly Tattoo by Deidre Knight. Oh gosh, I remember that book so well. Uh, and I didn't realize it at the time because I was a lot less educated and unaware, but it deals with the issues of bisexuality. I obviously I realized that the hero is bisexual, but I didn't I didn't um understand that that's that's what the book was about um in in terms of of putting a name to it. Um the, and all of the nuance that comes with all it. All the nuance that comes with it, yes. And the hero um, talking about how it's the person he falls in love with, not the not the container. Um, mm-hmm. It's just a. It's it was a another book that was a little bit ahead of its time, and was um, just really a beautiful love story. Uh, deals with issues of grief and falling in love again, and and who you love. So a book that I've I'm. I'm still proud to have been uh, associated with. I remember when that was acquired. um, And I remember you talking about how the digital publishing was a place where that book almost had to be because it didn't fit anywhere else at that time. It didn't fit in what was coming out of traditional publishing at that point. Yes. I mean, well, if anybody's familiar with Deidre, Deidre is also a, a literary agent. And and she had tried to shop that book to the New York publishers, and they weren't ready for it um, when it published. I guess it's like 12 years ago, maybe now. They, they weren't ready for it. I think that New York publishing would be ready for that book now. Oh, um, absolutely. I think it, it would do very well now. Um, but it's, it's still, it's such a great read. Um, let's see. Uh, one of my favorite novellas that I've, uh, not even, maybe not even a novella. It might count as a short story, um, that I edited was Silent Blade by Ilona Andrews, which I'm just always tickled about because I'm such a fan of Ilona Andrews <laughs> books. And so to have, to got, to have gotten to work, um, on that book, I was really tickled with that. My first, my first New York Times bestseller was, um, I think Shannon Stacy. Yours, yeah, I think it was. Yours to keep. Um, yep. I think that was the, my first New York Times bestseller. Oh, um, Fair Game by Josh Lanyon. That was nominated for a Lambda uh, Literary Award. So, I mean, that, you know, like there's certain milestones in my career that I remember. I have edited, I, I don't know how many it is now, but over 500, I think, books. Um, it's it's a lot, uh, but I'm... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it is. (laughs) There's, there's, you know, I I will be honest, there's ones that stand out more than others. I'm that seems normal after 500. Yeah, I think so. I I'm really proud of my portfolio. Um, You know, and, and recently, some of the books that I wasn't like, when I when I left Karina in July, there were still books to come out like uh, Dying with Me by Layla Rain. And Awaken the Dragon by AC Arthur is still to release. And, and those are things that I get to celebrate kind of after the fact, but will still become part of my portfolio and, and something to be proud of. What are some of the things that you th- have noticed changing in the books as you edit them over the years? We talked about the arrival and the advent of the heroine-focused mm-hmm. story, the stronger heroine, the plot that focuses on her, not him. 
that she's not in a um, role to be rescued or damseled or in other way, in, in some other way protected, that she's like the plot is her. What are some other things that you've noticed changing over the years? Um, I would say the the hero has also changed. Um, when we're talking about, if we're going to talk about a heterosexual romance, if we're going to talk about heroes and heroines, that has the hero has changed. There's less expectations of this alpha hero. Um, mm-hmm. There's still a huge audience for that. There's Facebook groups dedicated to that. Um, but I, I think that the hero qualities have changed. I would also say um, who we see as protagonists in the books have changed. Uh, it used to be that I didn't didn't see as many non-binary characters, for instance. We're seeing how we define protagonists change. Also, I would say what consent looks like has really changed a lot over the years. And we're seeing authors be more conscientious of consent, more conscientious of um, safe sex practices. And, you know, the... The conversation about the use of birth control has been going for as long as I've been editing. Uh, But I I feel like readers have started to just accept now that we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about safe sex. We're going to talk about birth control. We're going to talk about abortion and the morning after pill. Like those things are going to show up in your romances. Um, So definitely more social awareness. I'm trying to think if there's anything else. Like those seem to be the big ones to me. Yeah. In, in you know, and aside from which which genres are or which subgenres are more popular versus not as popular, and which ones are coming back into popularity, that 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 does seem to shift on a fairly consistent basis. Though it shifts faster and faster now, right? It shifts really, it shifts really quickly. I was I was looking at um, something that was a paranormal romance that I had edited uh, like uh, seventeen years ago, thinking, "Wow, this was before." paranormal romance was ever in New York publishing. Mm-hmm. And it was the only place you could get, you could get um, paranormal romance. And I think digital, that's still true of a lot of stories in digital publishing. Um, we're still waiting for New York publishing to catch up with um, inclusion um, and not just characters of color, but same sex characters, non-binary characters, disabled characters, characters from different religions, religious backgrounds, New York is very focused on one aspect of diversity. So as we see the the story change there, digital publishing is really what's allowing space for all people to publish. I know that uh, through my own experience, I know that finding and, and maintaining friendships that you make and create inside a business, inside an industry, it can be really tricky. It can be really rewarding because you speak a similar language. And when the industry is also producing a genre that you love, it's a much larger language and a much larger realm of common topics. What do you value about the connections that, that you've made? And what do you do when you want to keep your professional and personal friendships happy and healthy? <laughs> this is not a request for compliments, by well, the way. I have, I have hit my quota. I'm good. I, I have a funny story that I... Um, that I was going to text you about <laughs> this weekend. And then I thought, no, no, I'll just, I'll just save it to share. 
it it is actually really rewarding to find to find friendships within the industry. For me, I don't live in New York, so it's I'm apart from the industry in in some ways. I'm a, I'm apart from the um, where a lot of editors and agents and different people in the industry live. So all of my my friendships within publishing have had to be developed long distance, which I think is actually a very common experience for for authors and and bloggers as well. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And so the things that I have really come to treasure in in the friendships that I've developed like yours is one, the ability to to tell you something and know that it's not going to be shared <laughs> with the rest of the the internet. Like you have a sense of confidentiality. <laughs> and um, that is really important in this industry because we all love gossip. I mean, listen, we all love good publishing gossip. <laughs> we all love it. But you want to be able to tell somebody something um, like, you know, like maybe I want to complain about my my ex-employer or maybe I want to complain about an author or another blogger. And I want to be able to say something that's not like necessarily the nicest thing ever. And you have to be able to have a person that you can do that with so you can just get it out of your system um, and move on. But also know that they're not going to share it with everybody. And that that's really valuable. It really is. It's almost the opposite of the, oh, honey, no, 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 friend. That's right. Like, okay, put the Twitter down and step away from the computer is is the same. You want that to, to have that, that same level of trust with the person. You're like, I have got to tell you something <laughs> that is making me insane right now. Yes. And know that either way, both both of the directions of those those conversations are in themselves like in a vault. Yes, exactly. And and when you develop a friendship with somebody, that person kind of becomes the keeper of your history. So like you are the keeper of my history in some ways because you've been with me in several job changes. And I've been- You're super <laughs> fucked, by the way, because I don't know what year it is. So <laughs> if you need me to actually date this history, we're screwed, but okay. <laughs> but like, you know, like, you know, my stories and I know your stories. Um, yep. So it's nice. And to have that person who believes that you can do something, even when you don't believe you can do it. Or to tell you um, that that um, you shouldn't be listening to all those other voices, or to tell you that you are worth more than what you think. Like those, those are valuable things that you need in a publishing friend because publishing for everybody, not just authors, publishing for editors and cover artists and copy editors, it is a creative process for us. And as creators, mm-hmm. like we get we get kind of like insecure and and so you need somebody who's gonna who's gonna build you up. Um, okay, so I have to tell you my story because you asked, you said, so how do you how do you keep those friendships? And yeah, one we talk about um, love languages. There's the book, the five love languages or whatever. And one of my love languages is um, is gifts. I, I like to like to do nice things for people. So um, you, Sarah, helped me a lot with my website and gave me feedback and advice. And so I sent you a really nice bottle of wine last week. Um, but I apparently sent it to my house, not yours. <laughs> so I have a really nice bottle of wine. <laughs> that is so funny. <laughs> it showed up, you know, the FedEx guy came to my door and I was like, who's, why do I have to sign for this? And he, he's like, are you sure all you want is one bottle? And I actually said, I don't even want this one bottle. <laughs> he was very shocked. He, he didn't understand. That's, that is hilarious. 
Oh my God. <laughs> so well, when thank you, you in find, advance. <laughs> you're welcome. So I think when you find your publishing friends, you figure out what your love language is and their love languages and you and you do things to nurture the friendship. You find the people that are important to you and you work through those mm-hmm. because again, it's hard to find people with all of the qualities that that make a good publishing friend. It's true. And it it, it helps, I think, to accept that the people that you're in relationships of any kind the people are going to change and evolve and the, and the narrative of the friendship is going to change and evolve. And a lot of things can come in to interfere with those friendships. Like you see mm-hmm. it with people who start out together and then one becomes much more prominent than the other in, in yes. an authorial career or, um, you know, one person gets their, their dream job and the other person does not like that. Those are really hard stresses to, to navigate. And when you're inside an industry, that stuff's going to happen like all the time. Like it's constant. Yeah. It is a a form of courtship, I think, that friendship is an evolving courtship. But it's lovely, especially when I get wine. That is definitely <laughs> one of my languages. I'm a fan of wine. So thank you. <laughs> well, you're welcome. I, You know, the other thing I was thinking about is for you and I, for instance, we're in different roles in publishing. So we can be in awe of the other's career or a milestone into their career, but I don't, there's not really professional jealousy that happens there. Mm-hmm. The other, the other thing is there's not an imbalance between us. There's not a power imbalance. Um, so we're, we're not, it goes back to one author gets a lot bigger than the other author or an author forming a friendship with a reader who's in awe of them. Um, that, that power imbalance can be a detriment to a friendship, as you said, and is something that you have to work out together. Mm-hmm. And if the other person enjoys the power imbalance, then, then you're not actually having a true friendship. And you and I have never had to struggle with that. Uh, so you've had a, a, a somewhat um, mild amount of stress. <laughs> In the last, you know, few months since July, thereabouts. What do you do to take care of yourself? Um, I, I got to tell you, my biggest thing is um, I don't, I turn off all of my social media notifications. Social social media is a huge source of stress, I think, for a lot of us. So no notifications allowed on any of my devices. I only, <laughs> I only see social media when I want to see it. Um, <laughs> I have so, said, I I said to my phone this morning, I was on the treadmill and something had achieved the power of notification that should, that should not have had that power. And I said <laughs> out loud to the, my phone, oh, I do not think so. Like, you do not get to talk to me. Yes. This is you my- You shall not pass. Yes. Oh, I am all kinds of Gandalf with my, uh, with my notifications. Absolutely no notifications. Yeah. I, um, I did a, I did like a Twitter- um, I don't want to say hiatus. Well, I did a Twitter hiatus over the summer for three weeks, and that was that was a huge deal. But about two years ago, right after the presidential election, I unfollowed everybody from Twitter. I did not follow a single person on Twitter, and so I was only consuming Twitter through my no- through my mentions, and then kind of going into different lists and looking at things. And it was during that time that I realized how much social media was affecting um, my my mental health. Mm-hmm. So I do I don't do Twitter I don't do social media notifications. I I limit how I consume my social media as well. And and those are two really big things for self-care. 
The other thing is I limit my work hours. It's real easy always when you work from home to just sit down at your desk and stay forever. So I limit my work hours to the business day, usually eight to it's probably nine to six because I like to start a little later in the morning. And I, I try not to work on weekends. And in fact, I try not to answer emails on the weekends either um, to just give my my brain a break. Um, and then as far as, um, other ways that I'm, I take care of myself, I am, when I'm super stressed, I, I don't watch a lot of TV. So I only watch TV, um, with my daughter, we're watching the haunting of Hill house and, um, well, that'll get you some endorphin dumps. Damn. (laughs) Yes. And, um, when I need a mental break now, I've started turning on an episode of Schitt's Creek. So I'm, I'm like slowly watching that. I just finished season one. And then um, read, I read, I reread, I reread a lot. Um, when my brain is especially stressed, I turn to, to things I've read before. So like, for instance, I just went through a reread of a couple of Joanna Lindsay historicals, like the old Mallory books. Oh. And, um, yes. And Kristen Ashley. So I reread, I reread things that are like, like really help me escape. Oh, Yeah. And Joanna Lindsay is a fascinating example for me. (laughs) Like there are some books of hers that I almost read with a dual awareness. On one hand, I am fully aware that whatever is in this words, in the words, in that, in the words, in those orders, all of the letters assembled in that particular uh, arrangement is extremely addictive. And my brain is like, yes, more of this. This is great. Let's do it. And then there's another part of my brain that's like, what are you reading? (laughs) <laughs> what, what, why, what, it, uh, it, what, why, what, what is happening? How is this? What, how, how, why? Like there's, it, and yet it still works on me. It is a strange thing. Yeah. I, um, so I can't, I cannot reread her Vikings books because those are just like an absolute no go for me. Like, no, I, I can't. Um, but I did, re- like I said, I reread the Mal, I reread, I think four of the Mallory books. And um, then I still reread Warrior's Woman, which we all know is incredibly problematic. If if you've read it, you know it's incredibly problematic in the ways in which the the hero treats the heroine. Um, but I I can't I can't quit it because there's something addictive about uh, there's just something that compels my brain to think about this other world and the, the there's an artificial intelligence and the heroine it just all works together in my brain. Oh, it it's it works for a reason, <laughs> and, they're, and they're still in print for a reason. You know? I, yeah, I just I feel like I should apologize to somebody for reading it, but um. At the same time, you know, all your faves are problematic and some things, you know, you do just kind of, you just like, they just stick with you. They're formative. Maybe it was formative. Oh, it's definitely nostalgia for me. It's definitely a, 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 a sort of a time travel in my own brain of that was what was available. That was all there was. <laughs> so that was all I read. But at the same time, I love looking at what doesn't work anymore and thinking, okay, but this trope is still hooking me. This conflict is still hooking me. Where else can I find this in a book that was written, you know, within the last year or two? Because the tropes are eternal. I was going to say that exact wording, uh, the tropes are eternal. I think there's some tropes that are falling out of favor, um, one would hope. But um I, I, most tropes are very eternal. And when, when you're talking about... um you know, like this is this is almost like um, 
Warriors Woman is almost like a forced forced confinement. Um, the forced proximity. Yes, forced proximity because she's she's stranded on the on the planet, um, and so she doesn't have a lot of options. So in some ways, it works as a forced proximity in a in an unusual way. Um, so I mean, there's there's just so, you know, like something about the way certain authors have put words together, as you said, and put tropes together that that does still seem to to be eternal. Yeah, it really. It, and once you know what tropes work on you, 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 you get to find a lot more books. It's pretty great. <laughs> and which ones don't work on you so you can avoid them? Yes. Oh, oh, yes. That was a very good lesson for me. That was a very big <laughs> lesson for me. So what are you reading right now that you want to tell people about other than your Mallory reread my Mallory and I did a Kristen Ashley reread which that's uh, another conversation too I love love Kristen um uh, I, I have been doing a lot of rereading so when I think about what I have been reading recently um I recently discovered um a black author by the name of Christina C. Jones who is just I have been working my way through her backlist and uh, her contemporary romance is one of like, well, you would say again, it gets stuck in your brain and she uses tropes really well. I started with her, um, the Wright brothers. I read the Wright brothers. It's with a W W R I G H T and getting schooled. And I love like the trope of, of family brothers where I can go from brother to brother and read all the books that actually works really well on me. Um, I'm a series reader in that way. And also she's another person who writes heroines who are just fantastic and unapologetic and, and, um, uh, and, and smart, like so smart in a way that, um, draws you into their world. And I, and I say that because it's based, some of it's based in academia. So, um, it's based in the, the university setting and you, you just like, just really get captured by these characters. And so I've been really loving her work. Um, of course, everybody's talking about Nalini Singh, her Guild Hunter series. Um, and I just finished, was it Archangel's War? So, uh, I'm ready for the next one. <laughs> I'm always ready for whatever Nalini writes. <laughs> <laughs> Grocery list, Nalini, bring it on. <laughs> uh, you and I have talked about Sherry Thomas and the Lady Sherlock series before. Oh, so good. Yes, so good. And I think you're, doing an event with her that will have taken place. And um, I, I love Sherry again. Sherry's another one who writes like, just like super smart books uh, that make you feel smarter for having read them (laughs) because the characters are so smart. Oh, Uh, absolutely. Oh, you know what? I, I, we we might've talked about this or you might've heard me mention this. I have been reading a nonfiction for those of you out there (laughs) who are raising teenage girls i've been reading untangled by lisa i think her name is damore um and it's guiding teenage girls through the seven transitions into adulthood and i have a 15 a 15 year old she's gonna be 15 and um we're definitely going through some teenage anxiety and this book has really kind of reminded me what it's like to be a, a teenager working through friendships and hormones and emotions. Uh, and it's, it is it's such a soup. It, <laughs> it's, it's so, oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> Some days I'm just like, uh, uh, like 
one minute she's just happy and the next minute she's not. And I, and I keep talking to my husband about the fact that we just have to be understanding and remember that high school, she's a freshman in high school is so hard and really so much harder than um, it ever was for us, honestly. So it's, it's a process. And that brings us to the end of this week's podcast. Thank you to Angela James for hanging out with me and talking about all of the different things. If you would like to find her, her website is AngelaJames.co. And you can find her complete portfolio and a whole bunch of books. You can find her on Twitter and on Instagram as well. And I will have links in the show notes to all of the books we talked about. So do not worry. Today's podcast is sponsored by Unravel You by Diana A. Hicks. If you like steamy contemporaries with a touch of suspense, you will love this billionaire romance. College graduate Valentina never expected to fall for the hot as hell and very intimidating Derek Cole when she accepted his offer to rent his property. From cottage to mansion, Valentina is certain she doesn't deserve the fairy tale unfolding. But just when Valentina and Derek think they have a handle on their happily ever after, their past and future collide. A Book Lovers Emporium book blog called it a fantastic ride, and the I Love Books blog loved every minute of it. Unravel You by Diana A. Hicks is available now on Amazon and free with a Kindle Unlimited subscription. Find out more at dianahicksbooks.com. Today's podcast and transcript are brought to you by The Modern Breakup by Daniel Chidiak. Part confessional diary, part tell-all from multiple points of view. The Modern Breakup has become a social media sensation that's intensely relatable for anyone who navigates the dating world and still isn't sure what to make of it. So many women are connecting with The Modern Breakup, finding questions they've asked about their relationships inside Amelia's perspective as well, helping them feel less alone. Reviewers on Amazon call it a must-read, saying it's like this book is reading my mind. You can find The Modern Breakup by Daniel Chidiak everywhere books are sold. And stay tuned. At the end of the episode, I have a sample of the book for you. I will have links to all of the books we talked about, and I will have links to where you can find Angela if you are interested. But as always, I end with a terrible joke, and this one is really, really bad. I love this joke so much because, well, I love them all, but this this one is really terrible, and I hope you enjoy it too. Are you ready? How do you get two whales in a car? Give up? How do you get two whales in a car? Well, you start in England and then you turn west. <laughs> That's from Not a Dad Bot, which I don't know if it's a bot or a person on the Dad Jokes subreddit, but this made me laugh. I hope you enjoyed it. <laughs> Drive west. <laughs> on behalf of everyone here, thank you very much for listening. We will be back next week with a new episode, but until then, we wish you the very best of reading. Have a wonderful weekend, and don't forget audiobook sample after the music. Smart Podcast Trashy Books is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. You can find more incredible shows to listen to at frolic.media slash podcasts.
The Modern Breakup by Daniel Chidiak, Chapter 5. I Feel. Amelia. When it comes to dating, I seem to be going in a circle. The ones I want don't want me, and the ones who want me, I don't want. It's the same scenario over and over again. I feel like two people never remain on the same level these days. Their wants change so rapidly. I've tried to look at it positively, but when you keep putting your heart out there and nothing comes of it, it's a little hard. And the most frustrating thing is, even though I shouldn't want some of these guys who screw me over, I'm still drawn to them. I keep trying to convince myself that I shouldn't want someone who doesn't want me, but my emotions keep getting the better of me. I know deep down that I should be stronger than this. I know that I need to close the door and accept that my love wasn't appreciated. Not because it was wrong, but because I gave it to someone who couldn't understand it. I know I went too deep in my emotions for him. I know that I surrendered my power, my trust, and my mind to him. I fell, and I'm not sure we should fall for anybody now. Why do we have to fall? I want to stand next time I love someone. I want to be stronger. Looking back, I guess it was ignorant of me to trust someone with my emotions so quickly. I went too fast in my mind. I ran when I should have walked. And even though I know what's logically correct, my mind still plays around with me. I wonder whether he'll treat another girl the way I wanted him to treat me, whether he'll want to spend time with her the way I wanted him to spend time with me. I feel like all the guys I've ever truly desired, even from my past, are willing to give it all to another girl, but never to me. To some extent, it makes me feel unworthy, and that vulnerability does lead to new people I meet. It's that fear of opening up and being hurt again. I mean, who do we trust? Whether they're short-term passings with people that don't go the way I want, or long-term relationships that end... I've noticed that the impact they have on my emotions can be the same. When I'm not at peace, I find myself latching on to people I like, but who aren't giving me the same attention. I'll be the first to admit that there are moments when I have this overwhelming desire to have more control in the situation, to regain some dignity. I know it's probably my ego that's making me think like that, but right now it's the truth. These days, it's like I need to be the one who decides to pursue someone or not. When that's taken away from me by someone who has led me on, it makes me sort of anxious. And I believe that comes from insecurities and emotional instability. It comes from being fucked around so many times. And I'm not like this all the time. Usually, I'm a happy person and try to keep a positive mindset. But sure enough, every now and then, I meet someone who makes me swallow the advice I would give to anyone else. Old scenarios repeat themselves, just with a different person. I start obsessing over someone I don't even really know. As much as I want to see this situation clearly when I'm lusting over someone, I can't. All logic and rational thought get thrown out the window. Sometimes I find myself writing emotional texts to people, either out of anger or hurt, then contemplating whether I should actually send them. I'll think of all these things I want to say, hold back from sending, backspace and edit the text five times, hold back even harder, then get weak and press send. 
I try to convince myself to send it by saying, I should always express myself no matter what. Or maybe if I explain my point of view and how I'm feeling, they'll care. Needless to say, most times I don't get the reaction I want from someone who didn't give a shit about me in the first place. And yep, it makes me feel like even more of an idiot. I've been there so many times. I am deeply questioning the modern dating scene and what it represents. I also realized I'm not the only one. The more I speak to people about my situation, the more I see how common it is. We're all confused. It's like historically, we're all at a standstill when it comes to relationships. We don't know which way to go or how to act. And truthfully, I think most times we don't even know what we really want. We just seem to know what we definitely don't want. We're part of a generation that can have anything at the click of a button. Clothes, movies, information, and we expect that from love. We're impatient when it comes to getting to know someone. We want to know pretty much right away whether we could be with them. I must say I don't think I give people much of a chance in the beginning. A few false moves on the first date and they're out as a possibility. Well, to be honest, sometimes it doesn't even get to the first date. I'm strange, too. There are times when I think I really want someone, but then when they give me a lot of attention, I don't want them anymore. Maybe I'm the messed up one, creating this recurring instability. We want someone when we want them, and when we don't, we don't. It's sort of sick. Most people look for the closest exit when things aren't working out because they can just replace someone with the next swipe. We're so d disposable, so replaceable. The fight to make a relationship work seems to be rarer with each generation. Recently, my mom said something to me that I loved. She said, you have to stop expecting people who don't love themselves to love you the way you love them. It's true. I had found love within myself. I knew how to give my full self to someone when I made the commitment, but I have to accept that not everyone understands how to love as I do. A lot of these guys I thought I'd wanted hadn't found love for themselves yet. How could they possibly understand the love I was ready to give? People say to me, you shouldn't feel like this over someone else. No one should take up that much of your thinking. But I think they forget how much they think about someone they like. It's always okay to look at things from the outside and judge, but when you're in it, it's just not that easy to switch off. I wish it was. And it doesn't make me a weak person because I can't be positive or in control all the time. I'm learning that. There are stages when I feel lost with my career, sad for reasons I don't really understand at the time, and of course, emotionally unstable when someone has just screwed me around. I'm not always going to pretend I'm happy when I'm not. I did let my guard down. I let him in. Some people also say that it shouldn't affect me as much because I didn't know him very long. Although, I've been with guys for much longer, and it didn't have the same impact this did. You know that impact where you constantly excuse them for re replying to your text a day later or forgive them for not replying at all? That impact where you feel good if they're giving you attention, but feel like shit if they aren't. That impact where you're constantly looking to see if they liked your picture on Insta. 
It almost doesn't matter who else liked it if they don't. I don't think how long you've known them has much to do with it. It's the way you feel about someone. It's how someone makes you feel. It's how much you put in with your mind and heart that matters. It's where you are in your life. No one likes to invest in something and not have it go the way they want. Logically, I think I know exactly what I want in a partner. But in reality, can I really help who I fall for? When someone comes along and grabs my attention, it's hard to let go. You want to trust them. You want to have faith in human beings. Whether it's right, wrong, or stupid to feel for someone you haven't known for long, it doesn't make the pain any less real when you feel rejected, when you feel unwanted. If I'm an idiot for allowing myself to feel emotions, then that's a tag I'll gladly take.